This is the Voice Podcast Network. Welcome to Horror Saxa, the Voice's one and only true crime podcast. My name is Kate. I'm Bahar. And today we're going to be talking about the case of Samuel Little. But before we get in, it's been a while since we've done a podcast. I wanted to check in. Have you watched any interesting true crime po- uh, documentaries lately? Yeah, so this is actually a case I've been following for a while. Some parents basically sign you up to get legally kidnapped by a group of people and they take you to like some like random rural place in Utah and they train you basically to um it's for children who are deemed like out of control but like the parents are crazy. They basically send you over there for doing the most like oh, you, like, closed your door when you were sleeping, or, like, oh, you had your phone with you for too long. Like, this is crazy. And then finally, this documentary came out. It's called Hell Camp, the Teen Nightmare. Um, How about you? I haven't watched any good ones lately, but I have been thinking about re-watching The Act, which is on Hulu, because with Gypsy Rose recently being released from prison, I've been thinking about her case so much. I've watched a lot of amazing documentaries on YouTube, and I highly recommend looking at those. Mm -hmm. I think I would recommend looking at those over the Hulu documentary because Gypsy has spoken out about um, the creation of the the Hulu show, and it wasn't really completely accurate to what she went through because she wasn't really consulted in the making of that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is passed off as... Obviously, they say that it's a dramatized, fictionalized version of events, but a lot of people think that everything that happens in the show is completely based on true events, and it is not. Mm. But that case is so fascinating to me. It was one of the very first true crime cases I looked into. I think I first heard about it when I was, like, 14. Wow. So it's very interesting to see Gypsy Rose out of prison now, and she seems to be living her best life. She's She seems to be very happy, so that's that's good to see. Yeah, um, no, I remember I was active on TikTok when she got released, and the thing is, she got very idolized at first, like, when she got released, everyone yeah. was like, oh my god, go Gypsy, and then, as it happens with everyone, she gained that fame, and then it just went downhill after, I, like... I knew that was gonna yeah. happen, and I, I hated watching it happen, I hate that social media does that, <laughs> exactly, because, like, she she's a victim, she has been through a lot, And to have her put on this pedestal as soon as she got out of prison, I don't think it was a very good idea. And we all could see how that was going to end. But I'm I'm glad that it's kind of dying down now and she's slowly Mm -hmm. getting a little bit out of the limelight. I agree. Because she deserves to live her own life for the first time. Yeah. Yes. So before we get into the case, we did want to give a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for educational purposes only. All information in this podcast was gathered from research done by myself and Bahar. And while we make every effort to provide a comprehensive account of the cases we discuss, we encourage you to research this case on your own to fill in any information we may have missed. Keep in mind that the people we talk about in this, in this case are real people who were greatly impacted by the events of this case. Please be respectful of this fact in any discussions you may have regarding this case. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely mine and Bahar's and should not be taken as fact. As a quick content warning, this case includes themes of domestic abuse, sexual violence, physical violence, and attacks against marginalized groups. If these are topics that you are not comfortable hearing about, we suggest that you tune out of this podcast and hopefully we'll catch you in our next episode.
This is the case of Samuel Little, a man who was deemed by the FBI as one of the United States' most prolific serial killers. He was born in Reynolds, Georgia in 1940 to a pair of of teen parents, and he later moved to Lorain, Ohio, where he was raised by his grandmother. Um, Samuel claimed that his mother was a sex worker, which is important to keep in mind throughout this case. But the 1940 census did not list her as a sex worker. It listed her as a maid. So we are not entirely sure of her occupation. Um, So he was mainly raised by his grandmother in Ohio. And it is said that his grandmother was also extremely abusive. And I don't know if that is the reason why this whole thing started or he started like having a lot of criminal tendencies, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's and the background. His mother's job is important to keep in mind when you look at the demographic of his victims as well, because I did notice as I was going through this case that a lot of his victims tended to be of a similar demographic of his mom, a similar occupation of what he claimed his mother did. So a lot of his crimes later in life could definitely be tied to the trauma that he went through and his upbringing. Which is very weird, by the way. I don't know how to think about that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense through all of the true crime videos I've watched, through all of what I've studied. It makes a lot of sense that these forms of affection that were missing in his formative years had a significant impact on how he viewed the world, how he treated women, Mm -hmm. especially, like you said, with his grandmother potentially being abusive. It doesn't sound like he had a lot of healthy relationships with women in his life, Mm -hmm. which could have caused a lot of the anger that he took out on women later on. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, So starting from his teenage years, again, like he had a lot of uh, disciplinary infractions and misbehavior when he went to, I think it was Hawthorne Junior High School in Ohio. Um, and he was sent to juvie multiple times. He started by, um, he stole a bike, and then a year and a half later, he was reported 47 times for disciplinary infractions, which is crazy impressive. Not impressive, but crazy, because he was, like, not even, like, 16. Like, again, at 16, he started a lot of uh, drug abuse and alcoholism as well, which is a very young age. I do think that these 47 infractions happened before he was 15. Um, When he was 13, he was sent to a reformatory for teenagers known as the Boys Industrial School. Um, He was sent to this school because of him stealing a bike. And while he was there, it did not seem like his behavior got much better. Now, after after he was released, he started having some encounters with the law. Um, He was arrested in Omaha, Nebraska for burglary and was sent to a youth authority when he was 16. When he was 21, he was convicted of burglary for a break-in at a furniture store in Ohio, and he was sentenced to three years in prison. And at 26, he was arrested in Cleveland for assault and battery after beating a woman. These were some of his more notable arrests, but they were not his only arrests. He was also arrested over the years for fraud, driving under the influence, and rape. And between the ni- this occurred between the 1950s and 1975. By 1975, he had been arrested over 25 times across 11 states and served a total of 10 years for crimes unrelated to the murders he later committed, which we will get into. Okay, yeah. Um, again, first of all, very surprised that he went 
undetected a long time before like people started realizing he actually did more especially because he had so many run-ins with the Mm -hmm. law i've heard of so many cases where when things like this start happening when women start turning up murdered in a certain area they'll look at people who have had run-ins with the law in that area and i'm shocked that he was never Mm -hmm. suspected as a main suspect i do believe i read somewhere that he was questioned a couple of times but he was never deemed as any notable person of interest yeah. in these crimes. Which is, again, just crazy. And the fact that he did it so often and with yeah. no care about, like, being arrested multiple times. Yeah. And he was just, like, he just did it and went to prison for it. I mean, it is important to also note that these crimes occurred between 1970 and 2005. Mm-hmm. So when his murder started... DNA evidence wasn't readily available, um, and that was a large part of what would have gotten him arrested, would have gotten him convicted. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that during this time, so that could have been a large reason as to why he was able to get away with this for so long. Yeah, good point. Um, with that, I think we can start getting into um, his first murder victim. Um do you want to pronounce the name? Yes. So his his first victim was Mary Brosley. Um, she met Samuel Little in 1970. She was 33 years old at the time. Um, she was an alcoholic who was estranged from her family. And six months before her murder, she was reported as missing by her family in Massachusetts. She had a seven-year-old son, and she left him behind in June without telling anyone that she was leaving. She dealt with a lot of health issues, including alcoholism and anorexia, and she endured abuse from her ex-husband during their marriage. So she went to Miami to start a new life. And on New Year's Eve, she met Samuel Little in Miami. Um, Her body was then found a month later in a shallow grave in a wooded area. It was decomposed beyond the point of recognition, and the medical examiners could never confirm her cause of death. Her blood alcohol was her blood alcohol level was between 0.29 and 0.37, and if it had been in the upper range, closer to 0.37, it would have been enough to kill her. So at the time, they couldn't tell whether there was any foul play involved or if she had simply drank her to, drank herself to death. But because her body was found in a six-inch deep grave, they started to wonder if there was any foul play involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Evidence shows that her underwear was put on her with both both legs through one leg hole. And um, again, as we look at Little's typical mode of killing, it's believed that Mary was strangled to death. Um, he said that he picked up boxing while he was in jail, so he would box his way out of the murders. Like, basically, he would just knock the women out and then strangle, strangle them. Um, and, and because this was his mode of killing... It was difficult to determine a cause of death. It was difficult to catch him because there was no weapon tied to any of the murders. It was just his bare hands. Mm -hmm. Um, And he usually left these women behind in an alley, a dumpster, or a garage. This was his M.O. Yeah. I don't know if we've revealed the actual number of women that have been connected to him as a murderer yet because it's an insane number and that's like there's two numbers one that we know of and one that is suspected yes so the case of mary brosley is incredibly heartbreaking because of all of the health issues that she had gone through and all of the everything that was going on in her life 
it was not really surprising that she had ran away at this time, um, that she had left her family behind, and they had been looking for her. They reported her as missing, but they never saw her again. They didn't know that six months later she was murdered. Um, But they did assume that she had probably come into contact with some foul play because of the amount of time that she had been missing for. But this case was the start of Samuel Little's 35-year killing spree, which spanned from 1970 to 2005. And in 2012, he was finally arrested on an outstanding drug charge, and they did a DNA test, which connected him to three unsolved homicides between 1987 and 1989. In all of these cases, the women were beaten, strangled, and left behind, as we recently said this was his M.O., Um, And though we don't have time to cover every murder he committed, um, we will take some time to discuss the three murders that he was connected to upon his arrest on the outstanding drug charges. Okay, I'm going to start with Carol Alford. Uh, Carol was the first person he murdered in L.A., California. Again, he was all over the place. These murders were scattered across the U.S. in many different places. I remember one of the cases, I think, He carried the body from one state to the other one, and it made it very complicated. Um, Carol was found dead at the age of 41 in July 1987. She was naked from the waist down, wearing only one sock. And due to drag marks found near her body, investigators believe she was killed somewhere else and was dumped in the alley. Um, Multiple injuries indicating that she was hit in the head and strangled to death. And at the trial for her murder, several women testified that they survived attacks from Little, who tried to kill them. And um, I think the trial part is also very important because somehow he managed to, like, get out of those trials for so long. Like, he mm-hmm. had, a, like, a solid legal team that I think um, in one of the cases, he had a long-term girlfriend as well. Um, and she kind of, like, sneaked in information to the lawyers mm-hmm. to help them win the case. And they did. Um, and... The girlfriend died from, uh, like, they would shoplift together. It would be, like, very cute. But then um, the girlfriend died. I think she was 22 years old from Mm -hmm. brain hemorrhage. Um, Oh, so she was, there was a significant age gap there. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at the time of these trials, these trials were in 2012. So that would place them at 74. (laughs) No, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> I think she was either 22 years old or 22 years older than him. If she was 22 years older than him, she'd be 96. <laughs> either um, way, either way. This let is me fact this real quick. Maybe real quick. she was 22 <laughs> years younger than him? Oh, it was like a Bonnie and Clyde type situation. Oh, okay. Um, oh, my God. She was 30 years older than him. Like a surrogate so, mother. So when were they together? Oh, it, this was, they met in 1972. Okay, so he was, like, in... Mm, hold on. He was hold in on. his 30s. Uh, that's he, he was in his 30s. She was in his 60s. She was in her 60s. That's... I'm not going to sit here and comment <laughs> on age gaps. That's not what this podcast is about. But, oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, she something. died in 1988 of okay. brain hemorrhage okay. in Los Angeles. Um, Anyways. Well, yeah, she she was a little bit involved in the trial, <laughs> I guess. Um, and I believe that this trial was for the three murders that he had been connected to upon his arrest. Information about other murders he had committed came out 
after this trial, but it's crazy to me that there were women testifying at this trial that had survived attacks from Samuel Little. Because knowing how prolific of a serial killer he was, it's it's amazing what these women have survived. It's mm-hmm. amazing that they survived and they had the courage to tell the story yeah. to try and help bring justice to all of the women who fell victim to him. Um, unfortunately, the next two women that were victims of Samuel Little that were involved in this trial, there was not a lot of information that I could find regarding their murders. Um, But the next was Audrey Nelson. She was murdered either in August or September of 1989. I couldn't get a really clear date on that. Um, And she was found murdered and left in a dumpster in L.A. And she had fought a lot with Little while she was being attacked, and this left some of his DNA under his fingernails. And this is actually how he ended up being connected to her murder. So she went down fighting, and whether she did it intentionally or not, she made sure that she left something there to help bring justice. And that's incredible. His third victim in this time period, I believe all three of these victims, they were in L.A., but the rest of his murders spanned across the U.S., Um, But the third victim in L.A. was, I believe, a month after Audrey Nelson's body was found. Um, Her name was Guadalupe Apodaca, um, and she was discovered in an abandoned garage. And some of Samuel Little's sperm was found on her skirt, connecting him to the crime. And factors such as this and other factors, such as the way that Mary Brosley's underwear was found in her case, suggest that there was a sexual motive to some of these cases and that he had sexually assaulted or raped these women. Um, Samuel Little was convicted on September 25th, 2014 for these three cases we just discussed, and he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the the possibility of parole. Everything seemed to have settled with this case, but then six years after his arrest in 2018, or yes, six years after his arrest in 2018, he began confessing to other murders And the amount that he confessed to Mm -hmm. is mind-blowing. Yeah. Whatever number you're thinking of, double it. (laughs) He murdered, he has claimed to murder 93 victims over the course of 35 years and spanning across 19 states. Investigators have confirmed more than 60 of his confessions as of December 2021. The number may be higher now. But FBI crime analysts do believe that all of his murder claims are credible. It's important to note that the information regarding these victims may be inaccurate because Samuel Little's account of his crimes was often inaccurate or incomplete due to an inability to remember the details. Um, He often doesn't remember names of these women. Um, From the list that I found, I believe 39 of the women that he claimed to have murdered were unnamed. Seven others he gave a name for, but they were unidentified. They were not connected to an active investigation, um, which it's so devastating for their families to know that Mm -hmm. they are not going to get answers Mm -hmm. on this Um, because Samuel Little did die on December 30th, 2020, and any information regarding these unidentified women likely died with him. So about the victims i would say that um the way he talks about them in some of his tapes 
is very very off-putting which again like he was not remorseful like he did not feel anything towards any of his crimes to me it felt very matter of fact yeah he was just when he was talking about mary brosley he remembered in vivid detail what she was wearing the jewelry Mm -hmm. she was wearing he mary brosley was reportedly the first woman he murdered and he remembers it very vividly there are some that stick out a lot more in his mind than mm-hmm. others. He can't remember their names, but he can remember, oh, like, she was wearing glasses or, like, she was mm-hmm. wearing, like, that thing. Um, or she was very shaggy or she was, like... Yeah. It's just details like this that are very off-putting. Yeah. And the just watching his tapes, it's very... It's a crazy thing. Yeah, I, I didn't get around to watching them. I looked into mm-hmm. his accounts a little bit, but I didn't get to watch the tapes. Yeah. There was one unnamed victim from 1984 in Tampa, Florida, um, that he does not remember her name, he doesn't remember her age, he doesn't remember anything about her, but he was able to provide a sketch of her. So he remembers yeah. 20, 30 years after the fact what she looks like, but nothing else about her. That's it's, insane. It's crazy to see the insane amount of detail mm-hmm. that he was able to give about. There was another woman in, like, 1977, 1978, no name given. He remembers where he met her, where he murdered her, does not remember her age, um, but he remembers what she looked like. He knows she was somewhere between 20 and 35 years old, and he identified her as a petite black female. Mm-hmm. Um I do believe that her body was found, and they believe she was between the ages of 17 and 24. Mm-hmm. Um, but authorities are still working on the case, mm-hmm. so it isn't confirmed whether this was connected yeah. to him or not. Yeah. But as I mentioned earlier, um, Samuel Little had a theme with the women that he preyed on. He typically preyed on women who were marginalized, like drug addicts or prostitutes. Um, And this connects a lot to his relationship with his mother, um, who he Mm. claimed was a prostitute. Um, He said, this is so devastating to read, he said that he thought fewer people would look for them if they went missing. Um, As I said earlier, he never used weapons and oftentimes their bodies weren't identified and their deaths were deemed to just be overdoses because of the manner of death, which was typically strangulation. And this wasn't always obvious. They didn't see any noticeable wounds, any noticeable signs of Mm -hmm. foul play or struggle, so they deemed it to be an overdose, which is so devastating Mm -hmm. to read. Mm -hmm. Again, something that very much confuses me about this case is, like, the motive, because it's... It feels as if, like, it, he started out doing, like, any types of crime, just, like, shoplifting, mm-hmm. robbery, um, like, even he was on drugs, um, he was selling drugs, that's how he survived, um, and a lot of other things, but, like, um, when it comes to the murders of women who had very similar identities to her, like, to, um, his mother, I don't understand if, like, that's something that was missing from his childhood, if it goes, like, back to his childhood psychologically, or if it's something that, like, it's just, like, a way to get away from the police. Because it seems as if he doesn't really care that much about being arrested or, like, Mm -hmm. being in prison. I think it's just, like, a certain, like, grudge, a certain, like, 
negative attitude towards yeah. like people who are like not significant in his mind that yeah. like seems to be women i think a lot of time a lot of the time with these cases too the murderers don't actively consciously know why they are preying on the people they are and why mm-hmm. they have the urges to harm these people or to commit these crimes mm-hmm. it's something deep psychologically within them mm-hmm. that they may not be conscious of but they are acting on the urges that they have and yeah. sometimes it could just be how someone was born sometimes it could be tied to trauma that they went through mm-hmm. or their upbringing um, it could definitely be a variety of factors that could all play into each other and I would definitely be interested to learn more about mm-hmm. what causes these these impulses what causes this difference between people who undergo trauma at a young age Mm -hmm. and are able to go on in life without harming others and then people who undergo trauma at a young age and turn into somebody like Samuel Little. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that is all we have for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning into our first episode of the semester. We will catch you in a couple of weeks with our next case.